Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Hebrews chapter 1 through 9. There were those in the church that were drifting away from the faith because of doctrine. There were those from the church that were actually departing from the faith because of doctrine. They were going back to Judaism. And so Hebrews chapter 1 through 9, the writer of Hebrews, he took the time to say that Jesus is better than Jewish doctrine. He's better than angels. In fact, he's the king of heaven. He's better than Moses. He's better even than Joshua, who led the children of Israel into the promised land, and they received their rest because Jesus gives a greater rest. He gives abundant life here on this earth. But the Jews of the first century world, they had pressure, pressure from family, pressure from friends to return back to Judaism. So the writer in the first nine chapters, why would you go back to the high priest when you have the great high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses, Jesus the Christ? Why would you leave Christ for something that's temporal, something that cannot save instead of something that's eternal and can give you salvation? We see this in the church today, don't we? It grieves me when people leave the church. They feel the pressure from culture, maybe family or friends, and they return to or go to the religions of the world. Maybe their flavor is to leave Christianity and go to new age where everything and anything is accepted. In fact, truth is your truth and how you feel is right. And maybe that's a way and a thing that they want to turn to. Maybe they just don't even believe in God anymore, and they're now atheists. And atheist, of course, claims there is no God. But atheism actually has a religion. It's either a religion of science or a religion of humanism. Science says we can find the answer to the questions of life, and humanism says we are the answer. It's either a worship of a humanistic religion or what the humans can figure out, yet none of these things can save us. And so what they did was develop a theology, since since we can't be saved, let's just say there is no God. Let's just say there is no heaven. And we have a human being telling us there's no heaven and no God. So I asked this question, Why would you believe what a person has to say over the person of Jesus Christ who left heaven and came to earth to tell us how to get to heaven? That's Hebrews 1 through 9. But Hebrews chapter 10, well, it begins to take a new direction. You see, they weren't leaving because of of doctrine. No, they're leaving because of the pressure of persecution. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, what they were going through. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated. So when you came to Christ, 
you endured, great word, a great struggle with sufferings. This is not... This is not a passage that is easily preached in the 21st century feel-good cancel culture. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. People were stealing from you because you were Christians, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession, not temporal, but enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You see, he's reminding them of what they went through when they first came to faith because they're going through it again. In fact, if you just flip over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, some of them were even going to jail for their faith. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. So we've got to stop here for just a minute. This is so out of our realm of understanding. We need to recognize for a moment that there's a little bit of this that's surreal because it's not our circumstance, it's their circumstance. I mean, you drove to church in your car, or you got on the bus, or you caught a ride with a friend to come to a church that is well known in this community called Calvary Chapel South Bay to publicly worship with no fear of going to jail. How many of you thought, I'm going to church tonight and they're going to come and arrest me? Not one of us had that thought. Now, maybe some of you had that thought because you've done something illegal and you've come here to get saved. God bless you. We're glad you're here. So if you were thinking that, let me give you the gospel right now before they come and take you. Then you can start a prison ministry. But if you've done nothing wrong... None of us were thinking to ourselves on the way here, when I go to church, I'm going to get arrested. But that's the place that they were at. In fact, leave here, keep your finger here. Go with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. I need to remind you of what was going on in the first century world. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to pick it up in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, you have to understand why Paul is writing the Roman church this particular question because they were under persecution and they were beginning to think that God was no longer for them, that God was against them. And then he says this, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's writing them this question because they're being plundered and they're losing everything, even their lives. 
And he's wanting to remind them of what they have in Jesus Christ, that God gave his son. What else is he going to withhold from you? This is not our world or reality. No one is coming to our house and taking our dream mattress from underneath us and stealing it because we're Christians. None of us are going to our fridge and all of a sudden we walk in and all of our food is gone because we can't buy any more food because we don't have the mark of the Roman gods. It's not our reality. He goes on to say, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Do you know why he's asking the question? Because false charges are being trumped up against the Christians and they're being thrown in the gladiator's arena. Do you remember what Nero did? He burned Rome and blamed the Christians and he said, they call themselves the light of the world. They bl- they're the ones that burned Rome. And because of that, do you know how many Christians were killed because of false accusations? And he asked the question, who's going to bring a charge against us? He says this, it's God who justifies He says, I know what's going on, but you need to put your faith in God. Well, God, wait a second. Why are you letting this happen? I mean, if you're all powerful, why don't you bring this to an end? I mean, come on, God. I mean, are you some kind of cosmic killjoy that's allowing these things to happen in their life or even in my life? Do you actually enjoy watching this and all of these Christians dying? I mean, Lord, what are you thinking? And Paul is trying to get across the point. Keep your faith in God. And then he says this. Who is he who condemns? You know why he asked that question? Because they're being condemned to die. I'm going to prove it to you in just a moment. It is Christ who died. And he furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Do you remember when Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body in Matthew chapter 10? Do you know what Jesus was doing? Sanctioning martyrdom. He was letting us know in the 2,000 years of church history, Christians are going to die for their faith. There are people that have been falsely accused and condemned to death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, Jesus knows what you're walking through. He died under false accusations. But I want to remind you, he rose again into new life. Keep your mind on Jesus. And take a look what he says. Jesus, who also makes intercession for us. Don't you love the fact that Jesus is praying for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you know why he's saying that? Because this was the accusation of the Romans. We're going to kill you, and your God is going to die with you. Do you really believe? Who shall separate us, he says? Now take a look what they're going through. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril 
or sword. The week before I landed in Tehran, Iran, there was a young Christian girl who told her family that she had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know what the mom and dad did? They disowned her immediately. They stripped her naked and put her outside of the house. Stop for a moment. If you don't have your hijab on your head, you get arrested from the clothes police in Iran and they put their daughter out without clothes on. Do you know what they were doing to their daughter? Giving her the death sentence. Stop for a moment and think about this world. So much so to associate with what was going on. Would you take a look at verse 35? I know this is out of the realm of our understanding. But could you look at what the Christians were going through? For your sake, we're killed all day long. For the sake of God, we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let me tell you what a conqueror is. A conqueror is someone who sees the victory. Someone who is more than conqueror believes in the victory, though they don't see it. And what he's saying is here, for I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, any, in other words, what he's saying, any evil attack that comes against us, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's telling the Christians who were being killed all day long to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Keep your mind on God. Trust in God no matter what you're going through. Can we compare first century faith to 21st century faith for just a moment? Now, this isn't, I told you, this is not the message like, oh, great, I brought my friend. I thought he was funny. (laughs) I want you to stop for just a moment, and I want you to compare first century faith. I know you're dying. I know you're being killed all day long. I know they just killed your mother right in front of you. I know they took everything from you, plundered all your goods, but trust in God. Think through that for just a moment. I need to be honest at this point. This Bible study was hard for me to even prepare. Because I hate suffering. I'm not a big fan of persecution. And if I could be brother and not pastor, I'm walking through my own spiritual battle. And this is where the questions come. Lord, do you hear? Do you see? This is where you read Psalms, like Psalm 31. Have you cut me off? What's going on, Lord? Have you ever been there? 
Do you see what's going on? And so I want to stop for just a moment and be honest with you enough to say as a brother, as difficult as it is for you to hear, I had to cleanse my heart of any hypocrisy before I got up here and taught this. I'm a struggling brother just like you in hearing, wait a second, God, there's suffering involved? So the writer, he's not even about to tell him that the trial's going to be relieved. Don't you want to hear that? You're cured. It's over. You're free. Isn't there something about a trial where someone says you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but when you're in the trial, you don't see no light and you don't see no end of the tunnel. You're just drowning in the darkness of that despair. And the writer doesn't simply say here, hey, listen, don't worry about it. Look for the light at the end of the tunnel. He doesn't say, it's over, you're cured. No, he doesn't relieve them that the trial is going to be over. Instead, what the Holy Spirit does is he gives us what we'll need in the midst of the trial. He gives us what we need in the midst of a spiritual battle instead of telling us it's just going to go away. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, would you go back there with me? Hebrews chapter 10, he tells us in verse 36, for you have need of endurance. This is where everyone goes, ugh. Because no one likes this. You have need of endurance. The trial's going to continue. You're still going to walk through it. So you need a character trait. You need endurance. So that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. There's the promise. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe, maybe you'll circle that, to the saving of the soul. He says we need two things in the midst of our suffering. We need endurance and we need faith. These two things go hand in hand. For if we really trust what God has said, then we are, will be willing to endure through whatever life gives us because we trust that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do we believe that? Because if we believe that, then we're going to be willing to endure anything that the sovereign God allows us to go through. Ask Job. In fact, we will in just a few minutes. He says we need endurance and we need faith. Faith is the key to endurance. Take a look at Hebrews chapter, I mean, excuse me, Isaiah 7, 9. Faith is the key to endurance. Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz and says to him, if you do not believe, you will not endure. If you don't have faith, you're not going to make it because faith and endurance goes hand in hand. Let me explain. They've attacked Jerusalem. Ahaz is terrified. All of Jerusalem can't believe it. The king of Israel has come against the king of Judah and he's got a whole group of other armies with him. 
And Isaiah sends a message to Ahaz. Trust in God. Trust what I'm going to do. And if you've got the faith to believe what I've told you is going to happen, that you will be victorious, then you will be able to endure this trial. We must have faith to endure. So number one, let's take a look at the first character that we need. We need endurance. Turn with me to James chapter 5. You're not going to like this, but let's go there anyway. Okay? James chapter 5. If you thought the Bible study was bad to this point, we only go south from here. James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, speaking to the church, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the earth and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who, maybe you'll underline this, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Stop there if you would. Suffering and patience is the way to obtain endurance. Let me hear an amen. Amen. Really? Did you hear what I just said? Suffering and patience is the way to obtain endurance. Be careful. You see, we understand this in everything but our spirituality. We understand that we need suffering and patience to build up our endurance if we're on a diet. Because if we're on a diet, we are going to suffer ourselves that chocolate cake because there's a look that we want to have. We're going to suffer ourselves Christmas cookies. I have need of endurance. Because there's a desire for good health. There's a goal. In fact, I'm going to go to football practice and I'm going to let other guys beat up on me and I'm going to go in the gym and suffer myself because I've got a goal that I want to win the game. You see, we understand when we want to reach our goal in something material or physical, we understand when we want to win the gold in some kind of sport. But when it comes to our spirituality, we begin to go, why, God, are you allowing this? But we don't look at our coach when we want to win the game and go, why are you hurting me like this? We know that we've got a goal and we want to go to the Super Bowl and we want to win. You see, Jesus, our coach, has made something very clear. It's in John 16, in this world, you will have some training. In this world, you will have tribulation. Put that on a plaque. (laughs) 
Can I hear an amen? Amen. This is Coach Jesus telling us it's going to be a rough one today. This is Coach Jesus telling us it's going to be hard today. I'll never forget when I was swimming, my coach looked at me one day and goes, Chet, it's going to be a rough one. I started to cry because I knew what that meant. That meant 200-yard butterflies for two hours. That's what that meant. Now, I don't know if you know what butterfly is. It's the one where you do this. It's the hardest stroke in the world. And 200 yards is eight laps. Eight laps, nonstop. At the end of two hours, let me tell you what I look like. I was doing everything I could just to breathe. I mean, you got to lift your head up like this to take a breath. I was swallowing water. I threw up at the end of practice. And you look at yourself and you go, why would you go through that? Just quit. Get out of the pool. Let me tell you why I did it. Because I wanted to win the championship. So I suffered myself because my coach said it's going to be a rough one. The point is... In order to learn how to endure, we have to endure something. Church, can I tell you something? Endurance is not a trait. It's not a trait that you can learn sitting in that pew. I can teach it to you, but you won't learn it. I can teach you, but you won't learn. Unfortunately, endurance is best learned in pain, heartache, trials, and the troubles of life. It's there. It's there that our faith is tested and we see we have need of endurance. This past Sunday, Pastor Feridun, he he pointed out that our faith is the only faith that gives the answer for the purpose of suffering. He took us to Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, and he says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Paul, are you kidding me? You're happy about suffering? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, endurance, and perseverance or endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Our faith doesn't avoid suffering. It gives us the reality that we will suffer and then says, now hope does not disappoint. We're not going to be disappointed because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I'm not only telling you that you're going to suffer and it's going to produce character. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to help you make it through. God's honest. He doesn't lie to us. He doesn't say, come to Jesus, I'm going to fix all your problems. He says, come to Jesus and just wait. (laughs) Let the church say, amen. Amen. But it also, it provides the hope that we're enduring for. You see, our faith lets us know there's going to be suffering, but go back with me to Hebrew, excuse me, James chapter 5. Go back with me to James chapter 5. Take a look. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. You see, we will either die and see the Lord face to face, or we will be raptured and we will meet him in the air. And what the writer is letting us know, what James, the half-brother of Jesus, is telling us, 
The hope of the Christian is not for the trial to end, but in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul calls our blessed hope. That's where our hope is. Our hope is not that it's over. Our hope is that one day we'll see Jesus. Take a look at Titus chapter 2, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's hope was in nothing of the earth, but in everything of heaven. Here's the truth. Do you know that God is not going to right all of the wrongs in the world? In this era, this age of grace, he's not going to right all the wrongs in the world. Now, there will be a day when he wipes this world affected with sin. He'll wipe it away, and then he will bring the eternal kingdom where there will be no more wrong. But in this age of grace, he's not going to right all of the wrongs because he gave us free will. That means we get to choose to do right or to do wrong. And can I tell you something? Our prisons are filled with people that have free will and they chose to do something wrong. You see, free will allows us to do wrong things. Jesus confirms it and he said this, offenses are going to come. Just don't be the one that does them. Don't make the wrong choice. You've been given a free will, and because of that, people are going to make wrong choices. They're going to hurt you. I mean, what did Jesus say? If someone slaps you, that's a wrong choice. If someone slaps you on one cheek, you make the right choice and turn the other cheek. If someone forces you to go one mile, that's a wrong choice to force someone to do something that they don't want to do then you make the right choice and go the second mile for free. Think of what Jesus has communicated. The rain's going to fall on the just and the unjust. The sun is going to shine on the just and the unjust. In fact, if you look back at your life, I guarantee 50% has been great and 50% has been not so great. It's just the condition of living in this world. That's why our hope is not in anything of this world. Our hope is in one day of heaven. The problem is modern conveniences that have moved our hope from heaven to what we can get while we're still alive. I told you you weren't going to like it. Therefore... In order to endure this life, he calls us to be patient. Look at James chapter 15. James chapter 5, I'm sorry. James chapter 5. He says this. Therefore, be patient. Now, I need to remind you what this word means. This word, word means forbearance. This word means tolerance. This word means perseverance. Now, I don't know about you. With each one of those words, I feel like I'm getting backslapped. Those aren't great words. None of us like the word forbearance. None of us like the word persevere. None of us like the word tolerate it. None of us like these words. We like drive through window. I'm hungry. I go to McDonald's drive through I say I would like a Big Mac. They give it to me, and I eat it on the way. I don't even wait till I get home. 
I'm hungry. I go to Vaughn's. I buy a TV dinner. Don't even know if they sell them anymore. I buy a TV dinner. I pop it in the microwave. In five minutes, I am sitting down in my table. None of us like to cook because we don't like to forbear turning on the oven, waiting 35 minutes for it to cook, much less the hour it took to prepare it. We like drive through That's our culture. That's our context. So when we hear these words, it bothers us. You see, patient means to stay put and stand fast when you feel like you want to run away. Do you have that kind of faith? So what James does is he gives us some practical ways to help us understand that kind of faith. Take a look at James chapter 5, verse James chapter 5, if you would, verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Here's what he says. Wait like the farmer. Let me tell you about the farmer. I don't know if you've ever done farming. When we were in Liberia, we did farming. And we planted cassava. We planted peppers. We planted rice. Rice farms are hard. What you do is you go with a machete and you start chopping all the the small brush that's underneath the big trees. And you get rid of that and you wait about three weeks. You let it all dry out. And I was, used to be terrified because I hate snakes. We'd put a stick in the bush, and then we'd lift it up, and then we'd, we'd chop all of the uh, brush down by the root. And every time I'd put the stick in, I would go, Jesus, please don't let there be a snake under here. And I'd lift it up. And I'd go, okay, thank you, Jesus. And I'd start chopping. Okay? You wait about three weeks. Long time. <laughs> then you go in, and you take your little machete, and you cut down all the trees. Now, let me tell you something. These hands never used a machete before. So when I was out in the woods, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, I started noticing that all of the Africans, they were not around me. And I'll tell you why. Because my hand was so blistered and so sore from the hard work of being a farmer that one day I went to uh, uh, strike the brush that was in front of me and I accidentally let go of the machete and like a helicopter, you see this machete just going for the heads of Africans everywhere. (laughs) Farming is hard work. Then you plant. And that's where the ladies would come and they'd start chanting these African songs and they would just be throwing the seeds. I'm like, yeah, you got the easy part. You get to sing and throw a couple seeds. But then, then you have to have a slingshot because when the the fruit starts producing, you got to get rid of the birds before they eat all of your crop. I know we go to Vons. We pick up our, it's very difficult. There in the produce section, you got to lift up that strawberries. Ooh, that's heavy. And put it in your little cart that's got wheels on it. And you do, 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 do. I know, sorry. I know that we don't understand this, but it takes hard work. 
And can I tell you something? The fruit doesn't appear the next day. It takes time. It takes blood, sweat, and tears. The farmer works hard. And he waits for the reward of the harvest. And let me tell you why. It's worth waiting for. It's worth waiting for. Can I tell you something, church? We have need of endurance. Because in the same way, God is producing a harvest in our lives. He's producing spiritual fruit as we wait over the course of our lives. His goal is to allow Jesus to be shining out of you. And he's not concerned as much for your happiness as he is your holiness. And whatever it takes to get you to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Let me tell you what that image looks like. But Jesus looks like, let me just put that there, sorry. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Do you know what he's going to do if you lack love? He's going to give you a lot of mean people in your life. (laughs) So that you can learn what unconditional love is. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. You know what he's going to do to teach you joy? You're going to lose 10 jobs just to find. Pastor Chet, I brought a friend. But the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Do you know what you have to do to learn peace? You've got to solve a lot of problems. Long-suffering, I hate to break it to you. A marathon is 26.3 miles. A half marathon is half of that. I'm not a math guy. If you don't run it, you won't finish. You gotta long suffer. Kindness. You know what the Lord does to teach us kindness? You know what he does? What? <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa, I love you. <laughs> he says, goodness. Do you know what it takes to learn faithfulness? Your faith has to be tested, it's gotta go through the fire. Who's glad they came tonight? (laughs) Peter helps us understand this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says this. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Go to war with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in his flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. When Jesus suffered and died, he rose again to walk in the newness of life. And our suffering produces a resurrection in our own lives. You see, our suffering is used by God to produce the fruit of a new life. Our suffering, as we wait like a farmer, is going to produce fruit. Just wait for it. Then he says this. Look at James chapter uh, 5 again, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Establish your hearts. Let me tell you what this word means. It means to get something in place or to firmly fix it in place. Like establishing cement. Cementing something. And once again, Peter gives us some insight into this word establish. Take a look what Peter says. Mr. I don't want to suffer. Mr. Deny Jesus three times. Later in his life, he learned the lesson and the value of suffering. He says, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, ouch, perfect, establish, cement you, strengthen, and settle you. Now, I believe most of you know my family and I, we were immigrants. We came over from the Bahamas, but our family still lived in the Bahamas. So every year, three, four times a year, we flew back to the Bahamas. And I need to tell you something about flying back. I was terrified. I got airsick every single time. Me and the barf bag became personal friends every time. I mean, I threw up over everybody every trip. I landed. One time I landed on Paradise Island. I got off the plane, and there I was. It was it, you guys remember Merv Griffin? It was called Merv Griffin's Paradise Island at that time, and I drove Paradise Air, and I got off the plane. I landed back home in my island and threw up over everybody. I hated to fly back to the Bahamas as a child. Now, I fly all over the world. Turbulence actually rocks me to sleep. (laughs) I'm like this. I'm dead asleep. People are screaming. I mean, people are hitting the roof of the airplane and I'm fine. You know why? After I suffered for a while, I didn't realize that God was actually strengthening me to travel around the world for the gospel. The turbulence was actually there to prepare me to be a missionary. It cemented God's plan for my life. Did I like it? No. Was I embarrassed? Yes. Did I smell like barf every time I walked into my aunt's house? Absolutely. Now some of you are going, could you please stop saying that word? I'm suffering you. Then he says this, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble against one another. You've got need of endurance. You see, James knows something about the human condition. When we get impatient with God, we get impatient with people. See, trials can make us testy. They can make us frustrated, misunderstood. Where are you, God? Why won't you answer me? Now, the coach Jesus has told us it's going to be a rough one. He was honest. We're in the middle of our 200-yard butterflies. We're in the middle of our practice. And sometimes in the middle of it, you can get out of the pool and you could just throw down your goggles and say, I'm done. I quit. I'm out. I can't do another one. It causes us to grow impatient. You know the phrase. That's the straw that broke the... I don't even know where it comes from, but we say it. 
That's the final nail in the coffin. You had a bad day and you get home and you just give it to your kids. He knows that trials cause us to say something or do something we're going to regret. And the thing about it is we actually feel like like we deserve it. We have to let a little steam out. You ever been on a diet and had a bad day and felt like you deserved ice cream? Let the church say, I understand. And what he says here is this. Not only will we regret it, something worse, you could be condemned. And this word condemned, it means judged. And he makes it very clear that God is our our judge. Trials actually reveal something in us. Because when we're pressed, what's in us squeezes out of us. And what James is letting us know about God, God doesn't give us an excuse to sin because we're in the middle of a trial. We don't, get, we don't deserve to sin because we're in the middle of a trial. God, I've had a bad day, so I'm going to have ice cream. I know you put me on a diet, but I'm eating chocolate with chocolate sauce and chocolate cherries. I don't even know if they make them, but I'm just going with it. And we tell God we deserve it. Look what we've been through. We deserve a little taste of sin. I could say a curse word. That hurt. When that hammer hit my thumb and that word came out, I deserve to say that word. What James is letting us know is, be careful. God doesn't give us an excuse to sin. We're in the middle of a trial. You need endurance. If I ever cheated on a race, I was disqualified. Then he says this. Take a look. He says, my brethren, verse 10, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Stop there. He says, take the prophets for an example. And I want to remind you, the prophets were saying what God told them to say, and they suffered for it. Can I remind you of Jeremiah? He was lowered in a pit to die because he did what God asked him to do. Ezekiel was forced to lay on his side for over a year because God told him to do it. Daniel served the kings of Babylon faithfully for years and his reward was to be thrown into a lion's den. Great stories. Thank God it happened to them. Great stories. And when I teach Daniel and he was thrown in the lion's den, who wants to go with him? The problem is we know the end of Daniel's story. When we're thrown in the, den, in the lion's den, we don't know if we're going to live or die. So he says, take the prophets. He goes, we count them blessed. In other words, they've become our heroes of faith because of something that Jesus said. Take a look at Matthew chapter five. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
This verse is clear evidence that heaven has a different way of looking at things. Because how many of you are happy when you're persecuted and people falsely accuse you and beat you and put you on a cross and crucify you? How many of you go, woohoo, here I am, dying for Jesus. This verse is clear evidence that God don't think like us. God's thoughts are so much higher and his ways so much higher than our own. None of us see persecution as a blessing, but heaven does. And what the writer is beckoning us, start thinking like heaven. Have the mind of Christ. And he gives us an example of someone who did. Would you take a look? You've heard the perseverance of Job. You've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. He said, you've heard the patience of Job. There's something about Job's story that doesn't sit well with me. Satan asked God for permission, and God said, okay. I'm, excuse me. You could have said no. Um, boils. His children died. He lost his wealth in a matter of days. Okay, God, you got to help me with this one. His own wife looks at him and says, curse God and die. And Job responds, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For 40 chapters, the Lord doesn't respond to him. And in the middle of that, in Job 13, 15, take a look what he says. Though he slay me, yet I'll trust with him. I'll trust him. Even so, I'll defend my own ways before him. I got an issue with God. I don't know what he's doing. But I will still trust him. Whatever he does, I will trust him because he's God. Job 23.10, look what he says. Job 23.10, but he knows the way that I take. He knows what he's doing. I don't know what he's, he's doing, but I know that he knows what he's doing. And when he has tested me, I know something. I shall come forth as gold. Church, thank God for Job because some of us have been here when we feel that we're crying out and God is not responding to us. Thank God a human being sets the example for us of what faith can look like. And I may have a problem with it, and so did Job, but am I willing to trust God in areas of my life that I don't understand what's happening to me like Job? Because let me tell you something. 
God was glorified in his life and Job was purified through the suffering. All Job had was the Lord at the end of this. And James Wright, you know the end intended because all he had was God. And like John Piper said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him. When things don't go our way or things get taken from us, it reveals the areas that we're still holding on to the glory for ourselves. Maybe you've heard of F.B. Meyer. Every pastor has because we've all stolen some of his material. He was a 19th century theologian, genius. He was speaking at a conference one day and C.T. Studd, a great missionary, happened to be there. And F.B. Meyer had spoken for hours at this conference. They gave C.T. Studd 15 minutes And in that 15 minutes, there were people at the altar. There were people begging God's forgiveness. The Spirit of God fell down. So F.B. Meyer went to C.T. Studd afterwards. So the story goes. I said, C.T., I've been speaking for hours. How is it you come in 15 minutes and the whole conference is on their knees by the power of the Holy Spirit? I need to tell you something about C.T. Studd. He was a multimillionaire that gave all of his money away and went as a missionary to China and Africa. And C.T. looked at F.B. Meyer and said this, because you're still holding on to some of the keys. He said, I made a decision to give all the keys of my life to Jesus. F.B. Meyer went home and he asked the Spirit of God to speak to him. What keys am I still holding on? What glory do I still want? And it was a pivotal change in the life and the ministry because an example of faith had given up all the keys. Thank God for C.T. Studd. Thank God for Job. Because Job gave all the keys, even his life, to Jesus. That's how we endure. We need to be purified from impatience in order to be patient because God knows the truth about impatience. Impatience has a greater cost than patience. Let me explain. Ask Abraham about Ishmael and all the problems his impatience has caused. Ask Moses about the promised land when he struck the rock and couldn't enter in because of his impatience. Ask Peter about Malchus's ear because he couldn't wait like God asked him to. And so he says this, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. James chapter 5, verse 12. 
or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sin, he'll be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In the midst of a trial, we have need of endurance. Be careful what you say. Choose to pray. Be careful what you say. He says, don't make an oath to God in the midst of your trial. We've got to be careful of making bargains with God when we're in a trial. God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do this for you for the rest of my life. Let me tell you what a bargain is. It says, I'm in control, God. I'll give you this if you'll just do this. That's not faith. And we got to be careful about speaking for God. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Sometimes in the midst of the trial, a Christian will walk up to you and go, well, God's probably teaching you this. How do you know what God is teaching them? Be careful what you say. You don't know God's ways or God's heart to be able to declare this is what's going on in your life. You could be Job's friends. Well, you must have sin in your life. What if you're suffering simply because you're faithful? What if you're suffering simply because God is pruning a very fruitful tree? Two claps. God bless you. <laughs> Look. Wait. No, I didn't do it for that. I was thinking to my, I wasn't waiting for applause. I was thinking to myself, I wouldn't clap. Why would I expect anyone else to clap? If you want to say anything, choose to pray. But he says the prayer must be faithful. Faith comes from Scripture. So when you pray, make sure you're praying scripturally. Make sure you're praying prayers that Jesus would pray. Because the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Pray prayers. And if you don't know what to say, I try groaning. <laughs> and Jesus, he interprets to the Father. I'm telling you, he, he, got, he has grown down to a bat. If you don't know what to say, just groan. Jesus speaks groan. He knows what that is. We need endurance. My time's up. But I'll simply say this. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11? We'll pick it up here next week. Actually, we'll pick it up here after Thanksgiving. <laughs> Remember, we need endurance, but what was the second thing we need? We need faith. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God, so we just heard that we need endurance, right? Therefore, we need to live by that word if we have faith. And then he says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.